guys, welcome to episode 75 of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Emma Loggins, editor-in-chief at Atlas.com. I'm Matt Rodriguez, the owner-in-chief editor of ShakeFire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney of Last One to Leave the Theater.com and ATLCW.tv. And speaking of CW, we have to start with some very exciting news, or at least exciting news for me, because they just announced today that there's going to be a Roswell reboot um, with an immigration twist <laughs> in the works. I don't know what that necessarily means, <laughs> but that's that's the title of the article that's on Deadline, uh, Roswell reboot with immigration twist in the works at CW from Amblin TV. So... Um, we don't know much about it at this time. Uh, 15 years ago is when the series ended, and of course we had the reunion a couple of years ago um, for uh, the show at ATX Festival out in Austin. But all we know at this point is that Kevin Kelly Brown, who was an executive producer on the original series, um, is the link that connects the two Roswell incarnations. And beside, besides him, it's a whole new uh, pr- production team and we have no idea if any of the cast are coming back. And before we started recording, I was trying to find out all these details, and Mike just kept yelling at me that it was in production <laughs> or in development, in development. So I'm, I'm just like really excited about this, and I want the original cast to return. But the reality is that, you know, it's. They 15. haven't developed much yet. They have Well, they haven't developed much yet. And also, you know, you've got so many of the cast doing other things. I don't know if Katherine Heigl would come back. Sherry Appleby has been on, um, oh, I'm totally forgetting the name of the show on Lifetime, um, uh, Unreal, which is a fantastic series. Um, Jason Bear hasn't really done anything and Brendan Fair is on uh, well he maybe he's done things but he's not doing like, things. so you're saying he's available <laughs> he might be available um, but Emily DeRavin and Brendan Fair and um, Nick Wilkshire uh, they've all they've all got stuff going on or, or have have been doing stuff so I'm not sure how much of the original cast would come back even if that would fit into the storyline 15 years later um, but I think if you did Roswell without the original cast all of the diehard fans would be really really upset so, well, I t- I just don't know whether Sherry's gonna. She's getting a directing now. She's doing a lot of un- of the Unreal uh, season, uh, this upcoming season. Um, so I think she's starting to think about hanging it up as an actor and and uh, doing directing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't have Roswell without Liz Parker. That's all I'm saying. So I don't know. I'm like really excited, but I'm also like completely terrified that they're going to like mess us up. So anyway, that's my exciting news <laughs> for the week. Um, we also have a, another interview this week from um, T, TCM's uh, Trailblazing Women series that they're doing this October, or which is this month. And um, I did an interview um, last week with uh, Marianne Brandon, who is the editor on Star Wars The Force Awakens, and she's got a bunch of stuff in the works, and, well, let me just read you her bio. I think that's probably the best way to do it. Um, Marianne Brandon has experience working as an editor, director, and producer in film, animation, and television. Her last film, Passengers, was released uh, in December of last year. Her other work as an editor can be seen in Star Wars The Force Awakens, Universal's Endless Love, Paramount, Star Trek, Star Trek Into the Darkness, and DreamWorks animated films, How to Train Your Dragon, 
Kung Fu Panda 2, and she has also edited on J.J. Um, Abrams' Super 8, Mission Impossible 3, and is currently editing The Darkest Minds for 20th Century Fox. Uh, she's received an Oscar nomination, Edie nomination, and won the Saturn Award for her work on Star Wars Force Awakens. And she's uh, she's just a really cool lady with a really cool story. And it's another one of those interviews that uh, was just a, a good, honest conversation about being a female in Hollywood. So without further ado, here is my interview with Marianne Brandon bit about how you kind of discovered that you wanted to be an editor and um, kind of the career path that you took to get into editing. Um, sure. Um, let's see. Well, uh, I always really loved movies. So I went to the movies a lot as a child. I spent a lot of Saturdays and, you know, triple feature matinees. And, um, when I went to college, it wasn't really university. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I got involved in the theater department. And from there, I got involved with the filmmaking, um, like a group of kids. It was not really a filmmaking uh, major or anything when I went to where I went to school and at that time. But I got involved with like a group that made films. Like there were five of us, literally, making you know, these little shorts that would show at the student union. And uh, from there I got recruited by the um, NYU Graduate Film School, I think mostly because they needed women. <laughs> they were looking for uh, some uh, teacher of mine had recommended me to them, uh, a set design teacher who was at the time working um, for Saturday Night Live. And um ended up going to film school. I had no idea what that would encompass or what that would mean, but in the end, it just meant, you know, basically spending the next three years running around New York City with a camera and a bunch of kids or, you know, students making everyone's film, including my own. And I kind of got thrown into the deep end um, because I uh, had no idea what it took. You know, you had to write a screenplay, then you had to shoot it, you had a cast, you had, it was, very daunting and informative three years. <laughs> and it wasn't easy in New York City. And, um, you know, I hadn't really, you know, no one in my family was in the film business, so I, I just had no idea what it was about. I just knew that I liked films. And uh, I ended up having, to, in order to graduate, I had to finish my thesis film. And so, you know, by because there was no one else, I ended up editing it, and uh, I ended up at the in New York at the building where uh, all the feature films that were done in New York were being edited. So I I sort of met that group because my uh, because I had to find a place to cut the film, and I you know I, I exchanged uh, working at this place for uh, they would give me they gave me a you know, time on an editing machine to do it. And then, you know, in those days, it was just movieola and in a dark room with a, you know, with film. And, um, and I realized that I really, you know, editing was, um, came really naturally to me. I mean, I liked that, the whole idea of putting it together and, re, you know, having the final say on how to tell a story. And I, I, 
I kind of just followed that path. Uh, that's not to say I might not go a different direction, but uh, it really suited me, um, editing. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, when you're when you're sitting down um, now working on editing films, how long does that process usually take for you for, you know, in, in post-production? Well, you know, I, start, I usually start around the time uh, a film is being, starting to be shot, although I've read the script and I've talked to the director uh, and sometimes the writer and producer. Uh, it might be... I prefer to come on early, and for me, it's really valuable to um, have, sit with the to sit during the read through and hear the actors uh, perform the you know just read through the script because for me, for some reason, you know, when I read a script, I read it with my own intention and my own you know spin on it, but. I find that if I hear the words and can sort of watch them, then I can get a more objective uh, ear to the whole thing. So that's my preferred way of working. And then it really depends on the director and how they shoot and how much they shoot and the kind of film it is. If it's a big action, green screen, you know, film, then I have to, it takes a little longer because I have to figure out those shots. You know, they don't come in complete. But if it's a, if I have every all the footage, it takes it doesn't take as much time. And then I really just sort out the dailies and dive in and put it together and look at it and see what I have, and then try to figure out what the best way to tell that story is. Gotcha. Uh, with the with the big action uh, pictures and the green screen, how what does that look like when it gets to you? Do they have kind of rough special effects in there, or is it still totally just a green screen? It's just you know. It, uh, if it's a big action sequence, they usually have something called previs. So that's a computer-generated kind of mock-up of the scene. Like a cartoon, but it's really rough. And I try and use that. And usually that's just picture. It doesn't even have dialogue. And, you know, obviously a lot of big action scenes don't have a tremendous amount of dialogue. So I... I use that as a base, and I, and then a lot of things will come in where it will just be an actor on green screen. And if, if that is the case, I use the drama to drive the action. So I figure out the story, and then I build the action around it. But um, And then little by little, I fill in the blanks. I, have a, I usually have a VFX editor who I can go to and say, can you composite this? Can you put this person in this environment? Can you, uh, and then I just, like, imagine the time frame. Like, I imagine how long it will take uh, whatever I'm not seeing to, ha- to happen. And I'll rough it in. But it takes a while to get it um, figured out. Gotcha, gotcha. And it, a lot of times it's very little. Sometimes it's, I, I, I literally put in a title card and say, <laughs> you know, giant rocket in space. Something like that. <laughs> well, um, speaking of space, um, working on Star Wars, does that, um, a project like that, does it present kind of an extra level of complexity for, you know, a title that already has a pre-existing world and, and previous films and a, a pre-existing storyline? 
Um, sure. I mean, you know, it depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, obviously, Star Wars has a certain look to it, like obvious things like the wipes and how the first first couple of films, you know, establish that language, and they have characters that you love and expect to, you know, the the fan base expects to see. On the other hand, you know, it's always good if you can inject some originality into something so you're not retelling the same story. Um, but yeah, of course, Star Wars comes with an enormous amount of pressure because the fan base is so big and people, you know, there are people who consider themselves experts on Star Wars. <laughs> I'm not one of them. <laughs> so how, how, but, much, uh, how much research yeah. did you have to do going into that to, you know, to kind of try to alleviate some of that pressure for yourself? Um, you know, I was pretty familiar with Star Wars. I grew up, obviously, with the films, and um, I really didn't want to do too much research because I really wanted to have a fresh take on it. So I kind of approached it like I approach any film with a sort of, you, you know, I let the dailies kind of tell me what uh, their strength and weakness is, and then... At some point, I will um, try to impose my own vision um, onto it. Right. If that makes sense to you. And, um, you know, if for, for me, you know, doing Star Wars, and a lot of it depended on the, the new younger young actors that were involved in the film and what they brought to it, and their attitudes, and their their take on the character and of course you know J.J. Abrams had his own you know, vision of the film and I have to you know I have to answer to that as well as well as the fan base as well as you know every other creative position on a film right you know if I see a great um, you know set or great uh, um, piece of action I'm going to try to you know enhance it because So that was my interview. Well done, Emma. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think one of the cool things is that uh, she kind of just fell into editing that, that in high school she just started shooting some stuff. And then um, she then uh, went to, um, I'm not remembering what school she went to as far as uh, in New York. Why can't I remember that school? Anybody? <laughs> I don't have my notes in front of me. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, it's a famous film school in New York. I can't remember the name of it. And NYU. She actually wasn't. NYU. NYU. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and um, she she really didn't think about editing until she was doing her thesis project, which she had to edit herself. And she started, you know, I think it's really cool that she started working in this um, uh, editing hub and got to know all these crews and got got basically hired uh, to, to to edit and then she fell in love with editing and I, I just thought, just thought that was a really cool part of the story it's really interesting because i feel a lot of these um interviews that i've done for this series they haven't really had like a really strong introduction into hollywood some of them granted have had had some luck in the beginning um but 
it, it's just always interesting to hear how they got their start. And it, it's kind of uh, motivating and reassuring, you know, for, for people that are starting out, because it's a lot easier today, you know, to get into Hollywood and, and, and get your stuff seen through independent film festivals and YouTube and, and whatever it may be. There's all these additional platforms and venues now um, that there wasn't back then. So um, I have a, a much, much longer interview with her that's up on womensbusinessdaily.com if you guys want to check it out. Um, she talks a little bit about Passengers, which I didn't dive in too deeply with her because uh, <laughs> the film, which of course, which was filmed here in Georgia, uh, wasn't wasn't super well received. And it was a, a script that everyone had raved about. But uh, she touches a little bit on that in the interview and, you know, what what actually happened there. And uh, it was a really interesting conversation. So she talks about that and then offers some advice for others that are looking to pursue a career in film and editing and um just a just a number of other things. So uh, check that out. That's up now, and we'll move right along into our box office because I think we were all wrong about what we thought. Um, I was really Blade wrong. Runner was going to do because no. I I also want to talk about like what happened because um, <laughs> we talked a little bit about it on chat you know throughout the week of it being a nearly four hour long movie once you add in previews and all of that to the mix. Um, And that's a huge chunk of time, but it's also um, a film that, despite having a a fairly large presence at Comic-Con this year, I guess people, uh, as the article said, people under 40 weren't really super familiar with the franchise, which, I mean, I'm 34 and I'm super familiar with it and I was super excited for it, but I guess that's not um, maybe the late teens and early 20s uh, crowd wasn't as... I mean, it's got Ryan Gosling in it. I mean, come on. I mean, I feel like yeah. I feel like that shouldn't be an excuse, but what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it did underperform, but I think it'll have some legs, at least. You know, um, I think it'll be along the same lines as um, his last film, um, the director, uh, Arrival, which you know that kind of did around the whole like I think Arrival was like 25 million or something opening weekend Mm -hmm. but you know it had huge critical acclaim and you know a lot of Oscar buzz around it just like this one does so I mean I think it'll have a little bit of legs but um yeah I mean definitely when you when you love a film as much as you do with Blade Runner you definitely want to see it do well at the box office so it's it's a little (laughs) disappointing to see it only do 32 million yeah i think um it also i i'm not sure where they marketed the film correctly um and it, that i think one of the big problems is that it is such an old film and while a lot of geeks love it um a lot of other i've, I've just talked to a bunch of people this week about it and a lot of other people are not really very high on the original Blade Runner. Now, that first, for people you don't know, uh, they, that Blade Runner basically has been released four different times. Um, it was released originally, um, and Ridley Scott um, did a couple of screenings uh, before they released the film, and he got some very negative reactions from the audience, and so he cut a number of things from the film. Um, and And did a new ending to make the the movie a little bit happier as far as an ending goes. Um, And then he has since then 
released a version where it didn't have any di- didn't have any narration, and then he did a director's cut where he put the stuff that he originally had cut back in, um, and that's the version that I like the the best. And then he there is a what's called the final cut, which is basically he threw everything back in, um, even the stuff that originally he didn't think was was good enough for it. So it, uh, it's it's the movie. This guy, I think, I've got a reputation out in the in the in the fandom, but not necessarily everybody likes this movie. Um, I felt that Blade Runner twenty forty nine was a far superior product than the original. Although I did love the the look at the time because it was so groundbreaking, but this film is just absolutely gorgeous and an incredible score. It is. Um, I went to see it again this weekend in IMAX, and that was everything that I thought it was going to be. Um, but after thinking that was the ultimate way to view it, um, I actually heard that there's like 4D theaters in New York that were showing it. And like when it rains, you get like some water on you. And like when you're when you're flying through, like when they're when they're in the cars in the air and they're, um, you know, you get a little bit of pressure in your seat. And there's I didn't even know that like this was like a thing. And I'm really disappointed we don't have one of these theaters in Atlanta because I really want to go see this in a 4D theater we oh, that's that's been a that's been a big thing in uh in china and in korea and in japan is these 4d screens where they that some of the some of the uh the the seats um actually move like from side to side if you're like in a cha- car chase or something and uh it's a they become a very big thing um in those countries in, in uh, some asian countries um we, but it's not it's not it's not as popular here. Um, we do so. have like a three point five D kind of I guess I would say. What is a three point five D? It's not like it's not four D in the sense where like it blows air in your face or water that you feel, but like where the seats vibrate with the film. I forget. Um, one of the AMC's does it. The, I forget which one it is, but like they do their own kind of they call it their own technology or whatever gotcha. but where like the seats give force feedback depending on you know what's on screen and stuff and like they actually have speakers in the seats right i mean i just i guess with this film it, when it was being described to me and they were saying that you know when it rains they they like spritz you with water and i'm like like more than half of that film, it was raining. So, like, I feel like you would be soaked. Like, if you, I, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm sure you're not, but I'm just, I don't know. The description of it was so intriguing to me, and I kind of want to, um, I'm going to be in New York briefly in December, and I kind of want to see if I can go experience one of these theaters because I just, I'm having a hard time kind of picturing what that would be like. I mean, I guess it's yeah. kind of like, um, you know, they had the, what is it, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids thing yeah, at Epcot. Say like a, yeah, like Disney World and stuff, like they have those 4D theaters where they do their own films and kind of, you know, do stuff like that. Right. Or like something old. Like an, I remember one, they, were, they did one for, I think it was Aliens or something like that, where like an alien would run by your feet and of course they'd, they'd brush up against your feet with something and stuff like that, so... I think they did. That might have been Universal, because um, I think Universal Maybe. has something like that too, and I think yeah. that that might be their property. But um, yeah, anyways, I thought I thought it sounded 
pretty nifty. Um, well, I mean, coming in second, we had The Mountain Between Us, which had 10 million, so a little bit behind Blade Runner with uh, 32.7 million. Um, it was in third with 9.9 .9 million. My Little Pony, 8.8 .8 million in at four, and Kingsman, The Golden Circle, in at number five with 8.6 million. So the question is, um, this weekend, of course, with Friday the 13th and us getting closer and closer to Halloween, is it going to move up? Is Blade Runner 2049 going to do better? What What is your, your guesses for this weekend? I don't know. I'm kind of... I'm kind of hesitant after after my bold prediction <laughs> last weekend. I, um, I mean, it's a happy Happy Death Day, um, which we're going to talk about later on. Um, I think it'll get pretty good word of mouth, and um, because it's being released on Friday the thirteenth, um, I think it's going to get a pretty big push. I mean, it's not going to be huge, but. I'm thinking between like 17 and 21 million, but I think it'll come in first. I think Blade Runner has got a little bit of legs, but um, I, I think it'll I think Blade Runner will come in second. We have another film uh, coming out this weekend called The Foreigner, which is a Jackie Chan film. Now, I think word of mouth is going to be a little different on that because this is a very different Jackie Chan film than you're used to seeing. Um, it's very down. Um, there are no happy moments. You know how Jackie Chan is always kind of happy-go-lucky guy um, in his films and a lot of co comedic stuff. Um, and this film does not have any of that. And then it, I think, will do fairly well just because of the Friday the 13th factor, but I think it'll be more like fourth or fifth. Right. Yeah, what I mean, about your favorite movie, Mike? How do you think My Little Pony's gonna shape up? <laughs> uh, I think I think My Little Pony, which is not my favorite movie, um, will will you know you know be in like eighth or ninth place, um, and you know do like five million or something. What we do we do have one independent film that's out um, that actually did rather well last weekend, Victoria and Abdul, um, and I I think it'll continue to do pretty well. Um, you know, because it's it's a film that, um, especially people that like to go to art house films, is a perfect film for them. With um, uh, Judy Dench playing Victoria. And what is your um, what's your guesses for uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman? Do you think that's going to do well this weekend? Um, uh, Professor Marston is not a wide release. Um, it's it's get released in Atlanta and a cup in a few other cities, but it's not doing a wide release yet. Gotcha. Do we have a wide release date for that? I'm looking at it. Um, the problem is they don't. Yeah. They don't. They um, haven't. They don't tell you. Yeah. Because they, they base it all on. I always hate that when I, I'm I'm looking at tweets and they're going, you should go see. You know, and it's usually an actor that says you should go see this film this weekend. I'm like, I would want to, but I don't live in New York or L.A. <laughs> That does make it more challenging. Uh, Professor Marston is releasing in 1,200 theaters. Okay. So that's not a bad, not that's bad. a fairly big release. Um, well, on that note, let's uh, let's dive into our review of that one, because uh, myself and Mike saw that one, and I think Matt was asleep for it, which is understandable, because he... <laughs> <laughs> he was filming overnight on a set, yeah. so um, I. You say that, but <laughs> I wasn't. 
I wish I was. <laughs> are you uh, Are you recovered uh, from that? No, not hmm. at all. Um, <laughs> I think I've had maybe two hours of sleep since Tuesday morning. Oh wow! So, well, yeah. once at least- once we hit stop on this podcast, then I am going to finally sleep. <laughs> so, fair enough. At least the so, weekend yeah. is right around the corner for for everybody. Oh yeah! Oh my god! Um, well, Mike, do you want to set up uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman? Sure. Um, well, it's it's the true story of um, uh, psychologist William Moulton Marston, who's played by Luke Evans, who uh, was in a polygamous, polygamous relationship uh, between his wife, played by Rebecca Hall, and his mistress, played by Olive Byrne. And um, he is he has a theory on basically how relationships should um, move, move. And he then um, gets into some trouble because their their lifestyle, um, where they're basically, all three of them are living in a house and they're having kids. And Marston, uh, in desperation, uh, creates uh, the legendary, and for its time, controversial comic book character, Wonder Woman. Uh, well, let's uh, dive right into it. On a scale of one to five, uh, how bored were you? I wasn't bored. Um, I would I'd give it probably a two. Um, there's a couple. Of, it it is a film that likes its characters to talk a lot because they're all very smart people, and they're all talking about uh, things that interest them, which is basically. Um, the psychology of relationships, and um, so it gets it get is very talky, um, but I wasn't I never felt bored. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, it's an hour and forty eight minutes, and I I do feel like I felt like it was longer than that, um, but not painfully so. Uh, it, it it did have parts that I think moved kind of slowly, but I wouldn't say I was bored either. So I'd probably I I would also give it a two for that. Um, on a scale of one to five, how about eye rolling? What would you What would you rank it? Huh. Um, I feel like this is going to be a little bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's such a it, it's such a long progression uh, in this relationship story, and um, you can see all throughout the film there's all these hints at Wonder Woman. Um, in fact, at one point, um, uh, uh, she, uh, the, the mistress uh, gets into an outfit and is even holding uh, a golden rope um, and, and has a tiara. And uh, I just I was going, that's just a little, little too far for me. <laughs> I mean, uh, for me, it's it's definitely a, a super kind of. It's, it's an odd movie to see in terms of the, the sexual kind of content of it. And it's a it's a very sexual movie. And when I was leaving, I haven't seen Masters of Sex, but several people in front of me uh, were saying that they felt like it was kind of a similar feel um, to that series. So I, I think um, just because I feel like, granted, in, in this particular relationship, after... Um, 
Marston died, um, the two females actually went on to spend the rest of their lives together until um, one of them passed in in, uh, 1985. And then um, the original wife, um, Elizabeth Marston's, she actually lived to be 100 years old. So her and Olive actually lived out the rest of their lives together after after William passed. So that was, I, I guess it. I guess this kind of weird um, threesome relation, relationship kind of worked for them. So I, I can't really judge it. But um, it's just something that you're watching the whole time. And you're like, oh my god, this can't end well. This can't end well. <laughs> um, so you're just kind of like rolling your eyes when they they get into these fights, and you're like, well, of course you know, someone's jealous or of course someone feels this way because like this is such a weird kind of uh, relationship interaction. Um, so I think most of my eye rolling was was kind of around that and how this could actually be a functional, healthy relationship. Um, so I, I would probably give it a three on the eye rolling scale, but but not like a bad, like a small three. <laughs> I do want to correct one thing. I, I gave out the, the character's name as being the person that plays the character. It's actually Bella Heathcote is uh, plays Olive Byrne in the film, the, the mistress. And she does a, I mean, all three of these these leads do a pretty good job um, kind of transitioning into to best and worst performance here. Um, they all do, like, Bella does a great job at kind of being this innocent, wide-eyed, you know, um, girl, whereas Rebecca Hall is, uh, Rebecca Hall and Luke Evans, they, like, they both do a, a, a fairly, you know, equal and, and great representation of their characters. So there wasn't really anything that stood out to me as far as best or worst. I think everyone was, was pretty good, but no one was great. And no one was bad. Um, that, that was my take. What about you, Mike? <laughs> Um, I actually, I'll disagree. I think Rebecca Hall gave a very uh, fine performance. Um, it was a difficult one to make her character likable because she's very hard-headed and loves to argue, uh, her character does. And so it, it made it, it's, it was a much more difficult role. Uh, Bella Heathcote basically plays the innocent girl, and so you instantly like her. Um, I... I, it's not a it's not a bad performance, but it's just not. There was I would like to have seen more of Oliver Platt, just because I love to watch him act. Um, so I'm not giving him a bad performance. It's just I wanted to see more of him in the film. He plays uh, the comic book company owner um, that uh, Marston goes to work at. Yeah, and there's um, you know a number of of kind of brief appearances uh, or, or appearances I wish we could have seen more of. Connie Britton is also in it, and I love her, of course, from Friday Night Lights, but uh, and from Nashville. But uh, and she was in Wonder Woman too, wasn't she? Was she? Hold on, I have my trusty. Uh, uh, was she? I don't think she was. I don't know who you're thinking of, but it's not Connie Britton. <laughs> I guess that's the sleep deprivation talking. Probably the sleep deprivation (laughs) talking. Um, (laughs) Well, this one was not filmed in Atlanta, so there's no Georgia recognition factor here. Um, Overall, on a scale of one to five, what would you what would you give this one, Mike? Um, I think I would give it. I've really enjoyed the movie. Um, I'd give it a four. I I want to warn people is that there. This film deals with a lot of very adult situations uh, in as far as relationships. And although it's very mild, they do get into bondage um, quite a bit in this film. Um, 
So just a little bit of warning if you a little hesitant about that. That's Fifty Shades of Wonder Woman. <laughs> it, it kind of is. Um, you joke, but it's uh, there is a lot of adult content. It's definitely, you know, if, if you have a daughter who is a fan of Wonder Woman and wants to know how how the character came to be, this is not the film to take her to. Um, <laughs> nor are let nor let your daughter read the 1941 to 1945 comics because they're also into bondage and. All sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Because he used the comic books to try to get his his opinion on how relationships should go and was trying to teach the children of the of the country. That was his that was his reasoning behind it. Uh yeah, it's it's it is fascinating the the entire story and of course what's also really interesting is that he was the original inventor um him and his wife together they both deserve credit for it um inventor of the lie detector machine and apparently they never patented it patented it so it uh they didn't really get kind of the full credit or recognition or or money that they were probably deserved from it but um it's it's just such a weird and bizarre kind of story, and the fact that it's true, and this is actually how Wonder Woman got started, is it's just a fascinating tale. And um, I wasn't familiar with this this story until actually um, my dad asked me. He's like, "Do you know how Wonder Woman got started?" And I see heard it on a podcast, and he was telling me about it, and I was like, "Is that real?" Like, ser- and it is, it is. So um, this story or this film does a good job at, at telling that story. However unconventional and bizarre it may be so uh, I would also I would also give it a four I think it's a great film I, I it's a beautiful film I love the the look and feel and vibe of it I think the acting you know while there was no standout performances to me I still felt like it was really solid so uh, yeah that's that is that one and that one is out in Atlanta this weekend and you can look online and see if it's playing in a theater near you um, but if you're looking for something a little bit more scary this weekend, uh, Mike also saw a horror movie that he liked. So I'll throw it over to I, you. I did. Thank you. Well, it's called Happy Death Day. So a college student, her name is Tree, by the way, T-R-E-E. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Normal name. Uh, keeps re- she, Those millennials. So she keeps, yeah, I know. So basically what happens in this film is that she keeps reliving the day of her murder. And as she relives the day over and over, she starts to try to figure out who killed her and how to stop them. Um, this is a, I, what I liked about this film. It's got a lot of humor in it. It, it takes the slasher genre movie and kind of turns it on his ear a little bit. Um, Tree is killed about any way possible that you kill a person. Um, and it makes it makes a little bit of fun of the slasher films. I mean, the, the guy that's killing her has got a mask on. Um, he shows up uh, unexpectedly. Um, she tries to figure out who's killing her. The problem is, is that she's not, not a very nice person at the beginning of the film. And so she's got a lot of enemies. So there's a lot of people that she has to eliminate. Um, and then... There's, a, there's some really good twists and turns to keep you interested. Um, and uh, the, the star of the film, uh, Jessica Roth, I really liked. She's got a really good screen presence, and she's got a knack for comedy, um, which helped uh, make the film feel a little bit light and, and also was a lot of fun to watch. And there's some scary moments in it. Um, it's mostly jump out of the dark variety, but... With this tongue-in-cheek humor, this makes this film fun to watch, and it's not a great film, but it's enjoyable for its campy theme, and makes a great Friday the 13th date 
uh, film. So uh, I, I enjoyed it. Cool. I, I was looking at the um, lack of fun facts around this movie online. And yeah. The only one I have is that it was originally titled Half to Death. So um, <laughs> Half to Death instead of Happy Death Day. So that is your... Well, here's, here's a fun fact. This is the third film this year that's done a, a twist on the whole Groundhog's Day theme. Oh. All which right. is weird. Like, I wonder, like... Like, did somebody, did they just, did Hollywood just decide, like, hey, we haven't seen a Groundhog's Day film in a long time, so let's, let's, let's focus on that for 2017. I kind of wonder, I mean, um, Edge of Tomorrow was so successful and and loved by, by critics and fans, I kind of wonder if that kind of, you know, re, re re-energized the, the genre of Groundhog Day films. (laughs) Maybe. They are making a sequel to that. They are. They are indeed. Um, well, we have a lot of films that are coming out next week. Um, I do not have that list in front of me, but I bet Mike does. So, Mike, you want to run through all of those films? Sure. Um, so, we've got um, Geostorm, <laughs> which I don't know if you guys have seen oh, the Geostorm. trailer for that. Um, which, you know, it's got its oceans freezing and uh, planes falling from the sky and all sorts of stuff. Um, we have uh, the, the Snowman, um, which is a, uh, a murder mystery. Um, Only the Brave, which is about um, firefighters. Um, Medea has got another movie, Boo 2. And then in Atlanta, um, Goodbye, Christopher Robin is releasing, which is a biopic about the creation of Winnie the Pooh. And the, uh, the, the son of the, the man who wrote it um, um, about his life. Um, we have uh, a documentary. Uh, actually, it's not, sorry, it's not a documentary. But we have a film called Mark Felt, which is the guy that was Deep Throat in the, uh, in the, uh, that brought down Nixon. And then we have Breathe. And finally, a a film that Matt and I both saw and both just loved called The Florida Project um, that's getting rave reviews. Um, so there's a lot of films coming out in Atlanta. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, I actually did an interview um, with the costume designer for uh, Mark Felt. So I, I don't have audio from that, but I'm going to read a couple of quotes from that next week um, just because nice. I have that. And I it was it was was she was really cool. So we'll have it's that. A, it's a good film. I've actually already seen the seen it so I and I really liked it it's got Liam Neeson in it he plays Mark Felt and he does a really good job in the role and we've we've got a couple of uh, films that are releasing um, today um, that are wide release The Foreigner which is a Jackie Chan as I mentioned earlier Jackie Chan uh, film uh, with Pierce Bronson um, but it's it's not like a normal Jackie Chan film and then we've got uh, Marshall which is the Thurgood Marshall um, story um, where he, it's one case in his life, and uh, Josh Gad is in it, um, and I highly recommend people go see that one. Um, Thurgood Marshall was an amazing man, and uh, Chadwick uh, Boseman does a great job as, as Thurgood. Well, cool. So we will have a lot of 
we have no idea what we're reviewing next week because there are so many films. Um, I'm only seeing one of them next week, so I hope that'll be one of them. Um, <laughs> only the brave. I guess we can but... <laughs> we can make an exception. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, but next Thursday we also have uh, Project Cosplay at Joystick Game Bar, and this month will be Walking Dead themed. So it's it's gonna be awesome, and you guys should be there. It's free, so come hang out, grab a drink, and watch the mess of a show go down. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll be funny, I promise. Um, so we'll have all of that for you guys next week. So thank you for listening. Again, this is the Atlas Podcast, and my name is Emma Loggins, Editor-in-Chief at FanBolt.com. And I'm Matt Rodriguez, the Owner-in-Chief Editor of ShakeFire.com. And I'm Mike McKinney with Last One to Leave the Theater.com and ATLCW.tv, and I still hate My Little Pony. <laughs> sure, Mike. <laughs>